Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Faraz Rashid, CEO and co-founder of Hook. In this episode, Faraz shared his experience from both a buyer and seller side regarding enterprise software. We then discussed how companies could best implement new software to gain ROI immediately, why you should stop selling features and start selling transformations, and how you can use user acquisition tactics post-acquisition to impact retention. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. How do you build a habit-forming product? You need to invest. You saw these, these different... You don't just gun for revenue in the door. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Faraz, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. For the listeners, Faraz is the founder and CEO of Hook. Hook helps B2B subscription companies know which customers to focus on and what actions to take to drive growth faster. Prior to founding Hook, Faraz started his career in engineering at Credit Suisse, where he became a director and head of production for international wealth management. He then joined AppDynamics as CTO and Head of Customer Success for EMEA shortly after AppDynamics' $3.7 billion acquisition by Cisco. So my first question for you for us is, what did your role as Head of Production encompass at Credit Suisse? I looked after a fairly large team. So I joined the bank uh, as an individual contributor, being the person that looked after the traders when things broke. And um, a few years later, was running a team of 150 that looked after... Uh, all of our software applications across the bank. And a lot of what my role involved post-financial crisis was how do we become more efficient as a team and therefore do more with the same people or often more with less people. So a big part of it was actually changing my own team using technology while supporting the technology of the, of the bank as well. Very cool. And in that as well, can you talk a little bit about what that means supporting the team with technology was that yourselves building tools for internal tooling was it yourselves acquiring or perhaps like purchasing uh, software from outside vendors and then introducing those into the org yeah i think it was a mixture i think we started off doing a lot in-house to give you an idea one of the first projects that i undertook within the bank was we had a team of 24 people working around the clock, we knew that working around the clock was inefficient. And we ended up automating 70% of what the team did throughout the course of the night and, and brought the team down to around 12 people. And that was all done in-house. I think as my career progressed, you started to see the explosion in SaaS software 
and how easy it was to be able to implement within a banking environment. I worked for a Swiss bank that was obviously a heavily regulated environment. So early on in my career, back in the early 2000s, buying a piece of software meant shipping a physical box, having a six month lead time and all the rest of it. Later on, towards the end of my career, it became a lot easier to look at a product and say, we can get that up and running in eight weeks, you know, maybe 12 weeks at a push. So we became more and more dependent on, on off-the-shelf software to help us fix some of those problems. Very cool. Let's dive into that a little bit, I think, because that's something we haven't perhaps chatted a lot about on the show, and I'm sure it's pretty interesting for a lot of the listeners, is the actual buying process from an enterprise uh, type org like Credit Suisse and what that looks like and how you can end up actually maximizing the value of the product or service that you do end up purchasing. So maybe you could talk us through what it was like when you got started purchasing software and what it got it like once you sort of felt that you had got to some level of maturity and understanding of how you could implement and maximize the ROI from a service? Yeah, I, I think I have this unique perspective in this space because I spent eight years uh, buying software, supporting software, changing teams using software, uh, and never at any point being involved in the sales process of software myself. I then moved to AppDynamics and I spent three years there joining as their chief technology officer for Europe, then running customer success. And obviously now I run my own SaaS software company, building and selling software. And so I've got this unique experience throughout the whole life cycle of, of it. And I guess from the earliest experience, the biggest thing I would say is that in, in any case that I've ever bought any software, we've been seeking to solve a problem. And the question is, how do we go and solve that business problem at scale with a guarantee that we're going to get that outcome? And I've always believed that the software solution becomes like completely secondary to that. It's now easy as a founder to fall into the, the bit of selling features and forgetting that. But, it, but I think that's the number one thing is you're looking to solve a problem. If a piece of software doesn't solve it, it doesn't matter what you're going to solve because my job's on the line if I don't solve that problem. I think the, the large bit of buying the software is building around the business case of doing that. So if I solve this problem, what is the effect that solution is going to have on my team, therefore my budget, therefore me, and ultimately my career. Is this going to make sure that I get a good rating at the end of the year, a good bonus, and, and, and so on moving forward? And I, I, my message to enterprise software sellers and people who work in the churn retention space is like, that is the number one thing that your customers are, are thinking about and probably the only thing that they're thinking about. As you go through the process, I think the interesting thing that then happens, is there's a really hard struggle to get it over the line to make everyone in a company believe that this is a product you should be investing in, especially if it be becomes a multi-hundred K or a multi-million pound investment. And the next problem that then comes in is um, you get the purchase order signed. So legal's been involved, purchasing has been involved, your boss has been involved, the CFO has been involved, and every everybody has seen you champion this product. And actually, you've achieved nothing because all you've done is you have a set of licenses and a login into a product. Your team might have demoed it, but it's not changed them at all. But the main thing from that point onward is what is the gap between the purchase order that I've signed and getting the value that I've delivered out of that, that product? I would say the unique perspective I have is really on that exact one, one problem because I, I learned a lot in my time in, in banking and, and previously in SaaS software around how is it that you actually get to change how people do their jobs? If they're not going to change how they do their jobs, and there's not going to be a big ROI on, on, on what you're selling. And, um, and actually, that can be a, a pretty um, tough uplift. You've been doing the same job in the same bank for 25 years, and someone comes along and says, here's an automated way to do root cause analysis for incidents, for example. So I think that was a, a steep and interesting learning curve for, um, for me to go through. 
Yeah, definitely. That sounds super interesting. And I want to dive into specifically that. But you also mentioned a couple other things that I think are really interesting is we also recently or previously, not recently, previously had April Dunford on the show talking a little bit about positioning and what you mentioned earlier around selling transformations, not features. I think this was like she recently tweeted something along these lines is that like so often founders, like we want to sell the features, but really what we need to be selling is what is the transformation? What is the change that our product or service is going to bring to companies? There was a great episode on that point. And the second one as well reminded me of another episode where we talked a little bit about the invite flow of users. And a lot of SaaS products will typically have this like immediately in their signup flow, like sign up and now invite five or 10 uh, users to the account to get advantage. But I think what you mentioned as well, is a lot of times people are just checking out a product or service to begin with to see, okay, is this really something that we want for our business before? And I'm, it's my social credibility on the line here to introduce this product or service. And now you're asking me to invite users to an account before I've even seen value out of the product or service. So it was interesting just thinking a little bit about these tools and services and the timing of when it makes sense to want to try and push for that invite for the team member versus uh, when it's maybe better to focus on another action from the user. But with that in mind, those are definitely two interesting episodes we had in the past. I wanted to dive into a little bit more around this gap then from post-purchase to uh, delivering value because it really is about changing users' behavior. And I think that is one of the things we often underlook when it comes to the products and services that we build for our users is like, how much actually needs to happen within an organization and uh, for these changes to happen. So sounds like you've done a lot. Like what are some of the lessons that you learned in, in changing these behaviors internally? Yeah, the I, I'm going to use AppDynamics as an example. Uh, for the benefit of listeners, AppDynamics is a software product uh, that would help you uh, diagnose an incident quick by giving you a very quick view of the root cause. And I actually went through the cycle of both buying it and then leading customer success and, and actually leading customer success there up to when we got up to 550 million ARR. So some of the, the a lot of the examples where people went through this change. But to give you an idea, we would we would go into a customer. And their typical way of solving a problem in IT would be you're looking at a terminal, which is a black screen of white text, and you're scrolling through log files, and you're spending 30, 60 minutes trying to find where something is. And all of a sudden, your boss is now telling you that this new cool tool can do that in two mouse clicks in a UI. And I think one of the things that it's easy to underestimate is that the person that you're speaking to who's looking at the, the black screen with white lines has been doing that for 10, 15, 20 years in that exact same way, using the same product, and has like iteratively improved on that. And then all of a sudden, you're now walking in and saying, hey, there's a UI that you mouse click on and you drag things around on. And if you right click and click view root cause, I can tell you the, the solution to your problem. And what we found when I was at Credit Suisse and we made these changes was that in high stress situations, such as incidents, people default back to what they know because the last thing they want to be doing is to be looking at a new UI that, that they don't understand. And actually, I've seen similar things happen in Hook. So what we do as a product is we help customer success uh, teams and leaders automatically understand where their churn risk is by using machine learning to generate auto health scores and, and leading indicators for um for their churn, but it's a really drastic difference to the way that they've been used to doing things. We found a few things were really useful to doing it. The first is like being really clear with customers on what process are you actually trying to change and what does that look like today and guiding them through the new way of, of doing that. And the way we do that at Hook is we actually ask teams what they do day to day. What is it that you do in the morning? How do you prep for a customer meeting? And we help guide them on the, the new way of doing that within Hook. And then the, the second thing that I've learned is in changing humans, you've got two ways of doing it. Like 
you can either crack the whip or you can incentivize them. And we actually read a lot of studies around what works best and, and cracking the whip isn't very efficient. Saying you should use doesn't work very well. And what we tested at AppDynamics was how do we incentivize people to use our product? So we started with um, something very simple, which is we used to gamify onboarding and say, if you build the best dashboard in AppDynamics out of um, your team, you'll get this set of AirPods. And this was on like multi-million dollar deals. So the cost was tiny in comparison. And, and strangely, we found that there was a huge uplift in how people started to use our product. You would get 70 to 150 users within an account with uh, using the product within a week or two. And what it was that the incentive had triggered a reason for people to look up and take notice. And then over the course of the following few days, it triggered competition across the different teams to actually start to do something with the, with the product. And we do something similar at Hook now where we actually incentivize the first 30 days of adoption. We know that's the, the period at which onboarding counts or, or doesn't count. But yeah, the message would be really focus on what people are doing and how to get them to change what they're doing every day. If you don't do that, then the, the customer that you're serving won't achieve the ROI that they've, they've bought into. Yeah, I like that. And I find it interesting, the sort of incentivization uh, of engagement uh, from the perspective. And definitely it makes sense when you have large deal size, uh, like you mentioned with AppDynamics, to be able to give away uh, prizes in a sense or giveaways as a result. We do this, I think, when we think a little bit about acquisition and referrals, but not so often, I think, when it comes to engagement. Uh, and I think this is also like one of those missed opportunities on both ends from an acquisition perspective where we spend a lot of money on ads uh, trying to drive new users, but we don't really use that to bring back existing users. And the same thing can be done for referrals. I think this is just like applying that referral game that everybody tries at some point trying to refer five friends and win this or win that, but really focus on engagement and activation. I can see it being very, very powerful. I'd love to just add a note on that. I think um, this is the probably something that you and I believe believe in common that I actually think it's even more powerful in the post-sales engagement space because you can afford to spend the money on acquisition because your cost of sale is factored into the cost of the product. The clear challenge that SaaS companies have now is that um, sales is important, but net retention is like the most important thing to go and drive valuation and your ability to be able to raise money and your ability to be able to attract talent and investment and all the rest of it. And the only way to be able to do that at scale is by having an efficient strategy to um, engage users, get people to use your product and drive value out of it. Otherwise, you're, you're having to do that anyway. You're just having to do it with the same cost of sale at renewal time. And all of a sudden, you're now damaging your, your NRR. So I, yeah, I'm fully aligned with you. And actually, I, I think that, that a big thing software companies have been missing is how do we use the same tactics that we use in acquisition, post-acquisition, but at bigger scale and lower cost than, uh, than you do in the sales process? Yeah, for sure. We actually had Lowell Rickliffs uh, on the show recently as well from Traction Advising, who's helped sell over 30 different SaaS businesses. And from his perspective as well, is the single biggest denominator in the valuation that SaaS businesses and multiples that they get when they sell their companies comes down to net retention. So as you mentioned, like the amount of money that we spend trying to drive growth from acquisition, it's really actually like the multiples and the valuations that you're getting is on the metric. And at the end of the day is where a lot more companies, I think sophisticated companies are realizing that's where the focus should, should be lying. Obviously you need both, but when we start to talk about the valuations and the growth of the business, it compounds on that end. Yeah, for sure. It's, you only need to look at uh, Snowflake, Okta, and some of the, 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 the top-end companies to see you go above 140% NRR and you're looking at 50 to 100 times valuation. 
you stay at 105% NRR, you're looking at 10 to 20 times valuation. And that's independent of your sales figures and your sales growth. And I would go a step further into maybe talking a little bit around the experience I found when I was at AppDynamics was that we were able to actually correlate the adoption of our product directly to retention and directly to NRR. So what we were able to do was to go and find that if people were using over 50% of our licensed product that they had bought, they were likely to say, on average, it was 57% if they stayed, 29% if they left. And if they stayed with us, they were likely to spend between five to 14 times their initial investment in, in, their, in their lifetime. Focusing on like those numbers alone, when I rebuilt the customer success team there, within a year, ended up uplifting, uplifting our, our net retention by 10 units. So the only thing we focused on was, let's focus on the adoption number and the adoption number alone. Ignore revenue, ignore anything else. And, and let's focus on the accounts where they're below there. Um, and today we see this in, in every Hook customer that we onboard, that we trial, that uh, as soon as we plug their data into Hook, we have a machine learning engine that says, I'm going to go and look at your historic renewals and upsells and tell you what is a leading indicator. And we find in every single case, 90% of the leading indicators are related to product usage in different ways for different companies, but are related to product usage and adoption. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is something as well, like when companies get started, they focus too much on the output metrics, which is like churn and retention or revenue, uh, and not so much on the input metrics, which are actually the ones that are move the needle at the end of the day and have the biggest impact. And obviously activation or adoption being one of those that's key to be focused on. I think more and more companies should be realizing this that, okay, like there's a difference between the inputs and the outputs and having the team give core focus on the inputs really gives you a clear way on what to do. I think this is something we did actually at Hotjar as well in the beginning where it's okay, like we want to reduce churn uh, and that was the focus, but slowly over time we realized, okay, the team can't really do much with that. Uh, like mm. we want to reduce churn, but giving them the inputs that are actually influencing the final output really allows the team then to understand, okay, how can my role within the organization input this specific input. And that might be something to do with the acquisition, acquiring the right ideal customer profile, or it might be something to do with your activation metrics that we need to improve or on the engagement side, what sort of level depth of engagement do we need to be driving within the product or service? So the more specific you can get with these metrics that you want to be sharing with your team and the focus, I think the greater the outcome you end up seeing is because it really gives direction. Like just saying we want to reduce churn or want to grow revenue, there's nothing there, but knowing what is the root cause of that driving that growth or revenue is really powerful. So tell us a little bit about today. And I was interested actually because you started your career as an engineer and made the switch when you went to AppDynamics to CTO and customer success. Like what did that role look like in the beginning? How did it evolve over time? Yeah, I so I was at uh, Credit Suisse. Uh, I wanted to move into a high growth tech ultimately because I wanted to have my 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 own um, company one day, and uh, and also I was eight years into the banking industry and joined in the middle of the financial crisis of, of two thousand. I joined in two thousand and nine actually, and so it. it it became eventually quite exhausting kind of shrinking teams and 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 I wanted to be involved in the growth side. I, at Dynamics at the time, had been acquired by Cisco uh, for $3.5 billion. And the challenge they had was how do they scale, uh, particularly in Europe where there was a huge sales presence, but very little outside of sales. And so they brought me on as, as a CTO to help figure out what are some of the challenges outside of the, the sales process 
And where is it that we can help help grow and scale the business in some of those problem areas? The immediate thing that happened within like days of me joining was that the I had a very deep understanding of the customer base because I'd been in financial services. I understood IT operations very well. And so I immediately started to work with a whole bunch of problem customers. And, and in that process, it became clear that we had this like repeat comment coming from different customers that the product was great, but they hadn't figured out how to get value out of it. And they were having challenges with adoption. I had a strong opinion on this because uh, I had spent the last eight years getting people to use software. And my view was we needed to move away from the old school way of doing customer success, which was having a QBR every 90 days, sending out an MPS report, and maybe focusing on the customers that were being the loudest. And instead, we should use data to figure out who are the customers with adoption challenges. And as is the case, often when you're vocal about a problem, you end up getting given it, which then was the rest of my three years at at Dynamics. So I was asked to rebuild customer success. At the time, it it felt like changing engines mid-flight because we had a customer base globally of 170 million uh, ARR. We had a, a, a customer base in Europe of about 50 million that grew to about 150 million by the time that I'd left, maybe more. And what we were saying was that we were going to change everything that we were doing about customer success to focus on not the biggest customers, not the loudest customers, but we were going to go and find out who were the customers that weren't speaking to us and that our data said that they were likely to churn, even if they told us they were happy. So at one point, I was the only customer success manager at AppDynamics in Europe, serving some, some hundred plus customers. And these were fairly big customers. Our typical sales price was a million and slowly grew out the team there over the course of the following year to, to 25 people, really just focusing on, we're going to focus on the gray customers. Like we're not going to focus on the, on the ones that are shouting. We're not going to focus on the big ones. We're going to focus on the ones that the data says there's a problem here, even if it doesn't look like there's a problem there. Yeah, it's an interesting approach. And definitely, I think like when you think about spinning up customer success, like typically it gets introduced to serve the biggest customers first, and then we figure out like how do we serve the rest of the organization. But in my mind, it makes a lot of sense just really focusing on those that need you the most as opposed to just segmenting by arbitrary uh, numbers or revenue. On one end, I think a lot of companies do end up using as part of the sales package is that you'll have a dedicated customer success manager to work with and things like this. But really, probably the bigger benefit then comes in is like, are we focusing on the customers that need our help, not the ones like you know, they're shouting the loudest or spending the most with us? So you did that. Then at App Dynamics, you got quite a bit of experience, obviously, as a result of introducing this new form away. And then it sounds like that was just a natural progression then to starting Hook. Uh, you probably did most of what your product does today internally for AppDynamics and then rolled that out and decided to, to build the company. Give us a little bit more of an overview of what you do today at Hook and how you help customers. Yeah, I'll maybe just point on that AppDynamics topic a second. So we that journey in a bit more detail was we started with simple metrics. We built a data team. We ended up spending $2 million of data science to go and prove our, our theory. And our theory was that sentiment doesn't make a difference on whether or not customers stay and engagement does. And the data proved it. So we were able to predict our renewals with about 90% accuracy. And what we found was that if engagement data turns down, such as people use our product less, buyers become less engaged with salespeople and attending marketing events after sale, people buy less services packages after sale, then ultimately they churn. And if they are happy or not, actually that doesn't make much of a difference on whether or not they stay. And we have a theory about why that is. Part of it is because 
the buyers of enterprise software or users of enterprise software can't make decisions on sentiment. Um, if they did, we wouldn't be value-based selling. And therefore, if people are unhappy or are using a product that's difficult to use, you're not directly going to change it if you have uh, value out of the product and it's being used at scale because the cost of change is too high and the cost of change outweighs the, the value that you would get for doing that change. So we had great success at AppDynamics in doing that. And I looked out at the market. What I saw was great products that would help customer success teams in workflow. And so let me set a task and remind me when I need to speak to a customer. But everybody was screaming about this problem of how do I use my data to tell me what I need to do in my customers? And there was actually no product out there to solve it. So what we do in, in Hook is we use product data to help customer success teams know which customer they should focus on, which customers are likely to churn at renewal time, what they should do. And we also help them take the action at scale so they can take a selection of disengaged users and reach out to them. And we measure how well that, that works. And we do all of that in a really short implementation time and we do it out of the box. So our machine learning actually generates the health scores with an accuracy of about 85% on average in, in being able to predict renewals. Very cool. And so how's that going then? When did you launch the, the company? How far along are you? Yeah, we're, we're about a year and a half in, maybe slightly lower. Uh, I, we raised our first round back at the end of November 2020 uh, with Local Globe as our, as our lead investor for pre-seed. January, a small room on Liverpool Street in London with me and our first engineer figuring out how our Salesforce connector worked. I think we did a pretty awesome job last year on product build. So we ended up shipping at the end of last year with, with our first couple of design partners and our first paying customers. And really this year is all about building our go-to-market. I'd say I'm proud that we've built an awesome team and a culture, and that is around both execution, but also how do we work as a team? I think that's so important in the early days of team building and founding because it's just hard. Uh, and you want to do that hard bit with people that you like working with. And I think the second thing that I'm proud of is that we have a product that customers love that they get value of and also that it solves a really meaningful problem of yourself how frustrating it can be being st stuck handling the churn problem without the data teams and the product and and all the other things that you need to be able to be effective because you're shooting in the dark yeah it's been going well and and this year we've we've just started hiring our first sales uh, people and we're starting to look at areas such as marketing and expanding on on sales as well Very cool. And I think early sales, then obviously you focused that on yourself and then really started to see how can we scale this out now. Nice. So I see we're running up on time and I want to make sure that I have time for a couple of questions to ask every guest. First one is, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario. You join a new company, churner retention is not doing good at all. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, for us, we really need to turn things around. You're in charge. You've got 90 days to do it. What do you do? The catch is you're not going to tell me I'm going to go speak to customers or look at the data. Uh, the only thing you're going to do <laughs> is you're going to pick a tactic that you've seen work at a previous company and run with that blindly, hoping it works. What would you do? The two things I just jotted down was speak to customers and use data. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Oh, I actually need a second to think about it. I would figure out how to go through the buying experience and usage experience of that product. I think that you can start to make some pretty clear assumptions around what does the sales 
process look like and what are people selling and what they're actually buying because it's not the product like people are not buying the product they're solving the business they're they're buying the solution to the business problem uh, and then i would go through the experience of what does that look like and what's the first day of the product look like and what's the second day and what's the the the, the next then the next 30 to 45 days look like because i think if you can do that um you can generate some really good hypotheses about probably where the challenges are and, and what you need to do. And then the second thing that I would do, knowing that I can't speak to customers of the product, is speak to people who do the job that the product solves. I think people get wound up in like the product problem and it's not. If you're selling a software um, that helps accountants become more efficient, um, actually what you're doing is you're helping, for example, using workflow, you're helping uh, accountants with their admin problems. So I would go and speak to either accountants or people with that help people with that admin problem and figure out like when and how our product works. Um, I think that's where I've had this like unique perspective in my career and it's worked. And yep. actually we do it with customers. The first thing we'll usually ask our customers to do is to give us access to their product. And then we'll just build hypotheses about where we think the problem areas are. Very cool. I like that. Last question then. What's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? I think it's even more important than I thought it was. When I started my career, I thought it was important. I think you now look at the metrics around how it's driving growth and change within public valuations, private valuations, how the whole world has moved to subscription software from the consumer B2B SaaS world. And I had an inkling that it would move in this direction. If I'd have known that five or 10 years ago, I'd have been screaming about it louder. I think I always had a forward view, and but I was part of the train of change in what's happening in, in the world. For sure, I wish I'd, kn- I'd have known how important it, it, it is now. And I'm sure if you asked me in 10 years, what would I have known now? I wish I'd have said that I, I probably will say the same thing, which is that it was even more important in 10 years than I thought it was today. <laughs> Yeah. And obviously I think that's clear in the company that you're building that you, the importance that you see in it today. Very nice. First, it's been a pleasure chatting today. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Obviously anything we mentioned today, we'll have in the show notes for anybody to catch up on, but is there anything else you'd like to leave before we finish off? Yeah. I encourage your readers to, uh, or listeners even to re- reach out to me. My name's Faraz, F-I-R-A-A-S. So add me on LinkedIn. There's not too many Farazes in this. And the other thing I would say is if you go to my LinkedIn profile, we have a, a link on our website to a customer success metrics survey. We surveyed a hundred plus leaders on what metrics they use to help drive um, churn prevention and growth of their revenue. And I think those, those results are pretty fascinating. You can download them online. There's no need to wait to speak to a person. So please do that. Nice. Uh, we'll definitely add that as well as in the show notes, but it's been a pleasure having you today and I wish you best of luck now going forward into the new year. Cool. Thank you very much, Andrew. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you are able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm, and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.